This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Good day from California. Welcome to the Anything Possible podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a veterinary surgeon, former co-host of Pet Talk on Nat Geo Wild, and just all-around pet lover. I want to send a big thank you to all my supporters coming over from my previous podcast, The Dr. Courtney Show, where we spoke to some really captivating guests. And now those guests have a new home over here at Anything Possible. This is a podcast where I get to talk to some of the most fascinating and engaging people about pets animals, and just veterinary medicine in general. But by having these conversations, we'll get to drill down on the ways animals influence our everyday lives and why anything is truly possible when it comes to the animal world. Whether you're a pet parent or you're in the veterinary medical profession or just passively curious about animals, the conversations we have here will hopefully give you a reason to celebrate the human-animal bond. For our inaugural episode, we have a guest that I have been working really hard to get on the show. And as soon as you hear her speak, you'll understand why I've been working tirelessly to have this conversation. Not only is she caring and empathetic, but she's one of the most knowledgeable veterinarians I know. Moreover, she's on the leading edge of integrative medicine, and she's extremely progressive in her field. But there's more. Together today, we are going to discuss the hot-button topic of cannabis in veterinary medicine. That's right. We're going to be talking about weed, pot, marijuana, whatever your chosen parlance is for this pharmaceutical flower. We're going to try to find out if veterinary medicine is going through a period of uh, reefer madness or is it magnificent marijuana? But before we get to this question, I think it's important to talk about why this jumped to the top of my radar. A few months ago, I met this really handsome eight-year-old Weimariner who came in for a surgical consultation. He spent his days running around an avocado farm, but one Tuesday in particular, things did not work out so well for him. He came up on the losing end of a game of chicken he was playing with a tractor. Unfortunately, this Weimariner had broken his right tibia. It was severely comminuted, meaning it was in multiple pieces, and if it wasn't for the splint he had on, his leg would have been dangling from the knee down. We put our minds together. Unfortunately, we were able to surgically repair his tibia with a very long bone plate, a lot of screws, a large pin down the middle. And now all he needed to do was heal. But in order to heal, he needed at least eight weeks where he was chill. That means no running, no jumping, no playing, and definitely no chasing tractors. And this Weimariner wasn't having it. He was strong, powerful, and athletic. And just after a couple of days post-surgery, he was ready to go. All he wanted to do was run around the avocado farm again. But any explosive activity would have made his entire fracture repair fall apart. That would mean more surgery, more pain, and potentially more suffering if he had complications. So we gave him several weeks prescription of a much-needed anti-anxiety medication that was going to help keep him quiet. When he came back in 14 days to have his stitches removed, I asked his family how he was recovering. She said, I'm struggling. He won't stay in his crate. He's like the Energizer Bunny. Now, we all know why Mariners can go nonstop, but I was still surprised. I said, wait, you're saying he still acts that wild on the anti-anxiety medications? She said, well, no, I took him off all of those medications. I said, why? Did he have any negative reactions or were there any adverse events? She said, no, 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 no. I just wanted to try these new CBD drops I got from the local farmer's market instead. 
So despite the risks of having his delicate surgical repair crumbling to pieces again from overactivity, she opted against the prescribed medication and instead went with the belief that the CBD she purchased from the farmer's market would be all her dog needed. The appeal of medical cannabis, or in this case, veterinary medical cannabis, was and is very strong. And the truth is, it's only going to get stronger. That's why I feel as veterinarians, we have to dedicate more resources to the discovery and research of veterinary medical cannabis so that pet parents have the best information. So today, we're going to explore the ways that cannabis, and in particular, CBD, is impacting veterinary medical care. As medical cannabis booms in the human market for self-care, general wellness, and just overall medical conditions, it's only natural that that market would transition to pets because pets are part of our families. 64% of U.S. adults agree that marijuana has medical benefits. And when polled, the top reasons of CBD use among humans was to relieve pain, help with sleep and anxiety, and to avoid to avoid the use of other pharmaceuticals. The market is projected to reach 45 billion, that's with a B, by 2024, with California being by far the biggest market. Laws in 28 states, plus the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and Guam, allow for comprehensive medical marijuana programs for people, but California is the only state thus far to formally address veterinary medical use. Last September, the law AB 2215 was passed, which protects veterinarians in California from punishment solely for discussing cannabis and animals. And recently, it was announced that SB 627, a bill that would have made California the first state in the country to authorize veterinarians to recommend cannabis as medicine, unfortunately, it will have to wait until 2020. So the lack of legal authority to formally prescribe these medications has created an awkward situation for veterinarians who want to prescribe these medications but don't want to risk their licenses by using unsanctioned therapies. Coming up, we have a guest that not only will help veterinarians navigate this potentially awkward situation, but it will help pet parents understand where we are with veterinary medical cannabis. But before we do that, let's pause for a few brief moments for a word from one of our sponsors and then we'll connect on the other side. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Pick up two tubes of Doggo Suds. Get the third tube free. Peppermint, tea tree, lavender, Doggo Sud shampoo. Made with all-natural coconut, jojoba, aloe. Great for healthy skin and soft, shiny coats. But no itchy, harsh chemicals. Lather up, rinse away. Try Doggo Suds. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Okay, we're back, and I am super excited to speak with our next guest. No matter where you are in the United States, you have heard that the market for human medical marijuana is exploding, and the use of veterinary medical marijuana or cannabis for pets will soon mirror that. But that is... Is that truly sound medicine or is that kind of a little bit pure madness? Regardless of what side you come on down when it comes to that question, you're going to want to hear from our next guest. So today we are joined by a leading voice in the veterinary cannabis field, Dr. Trina Hazah. Dr. Trina Hazah is a veterinary oncologist and integrative medicine specialist. She was born and raised in Washington, D.C. She earned her doctorate from Tuskegee University School of Veterinary Medicine. 
go Tuskegee, in 2006. And from there, she completed her small animal internship at Red Bank Veterinary Hospital in New Jersey. She completed a three-year residency in medical oncology at the Veterinary Oncology and Hematology Center in Connecticut. She has also finished the requirements to be a certified veterinary Chinese herbalist from the Qi Institute of Traditional Chinese Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Hazai is all in when it comes to complementary and alternative medicine. She offers a very novel approach to veterinary cancer therapy by combining conventional Western therapies with complementary Eastern therapies. And over the past four years, Dr. Hazai has been deeply involved in exploring the clinical applications of veterinary cannabis. She's a member of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians, Canadian Association of Veterinary Cannabinoid Medicine, Veterinary Cancer Society, and American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, just to name a few. Not only is Dr. Haza an outstanding oncologist, a fellow alum from Tuskegee, but in full disclosure, she's an amazing friend. So I just want to welcome you, Dr. Haza, to Anything Possible. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the lovely introduction, Courtney. Well, listen, thanks. You, you know, like I was going to say, I mean, I got to be honest, it does not sound right saying Dr. Hazat. I can call you Trina, right? Uh, please, please. All right. All right. Perfect. It's, you know, we, you and I were chopping it up offline about the veterinary medical cannabis industry and it's beautiful in its complexity and depth. So I'm serious when I say I'm really happy that you, that you're with me today, but all right, so listen, before we do this, before we drill down, because we're going to jump right into it, I like to do something called set the scene on anything possible here. So do the listeners a favor, set the scene on how a young Trina kind of developed a passion for animals, and then ultimately how that led into the veterinary profession. Yeah, no, so for me, it started off actually, it was interesting. I uh, grew up in Washington, D.C., as you mentioned, and my father always said I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, which I think, Courtney, you would laugh about considering that's what you're doing and I'm doing that. <laughs> right, exactly, right. That right now. And, you know, I'd always been very good at science and math. And so I was going to go into the, either the engineering field like my father or going into medicine. And he really wanted me to go into human medicine. And then I, when I turned 15, I had begged my parents for a dog for, you know, most of my childhood. And I was given the opportunity to pick a yellow Labrador. And that was my dream dog. And Courtney, you had the pleasure of meeting Otis during veterinary school where we met. Of course. And, uh, and you know, it was very interesting because I spent a lot of time with him. But what I was so interested in was, like, I had to figure out how I was going to feed him and how I was. So I figured, well, the best way to do this is I'll work at a veterinary hospital and get food from them. And where was I going to get veterinary care? I couldn't afford it as a 15-year-old. So if I worked at a veterinary hospital, then I could afford to get veterinary care because I was basically getting it for free from the, uh, the veterinarian there. And so it was just such a great opportunity where I was learning a lot of medicine, not realizing that I was getting very interested in veterinary medicine, but I was also getting the opportunity of being able to take really good care of my dog and not being able to, you know, afford it very much at 15 years old. So it worked out perfectly. And I started off cleaning cages and walking dogs. And then slowly but surely, the veterinarian saw potential in me and said, hey, why don't you come help me with these dental procedures or with surgery and go into consults with her? And I started to do that. And over the, you know, of summers, I was working with her. And then then she recommended I work at some other hospitals, an emergency hospital. And then before I knew it, I was like full in veterinary medicine. There was never, I was not going into human medicine. I loved the, the kind of strategic thinking 
through all of the cases. I loved working with the animals. I very much enjoyed working with the owners, the pet parents as well. It wasn't just about the animals for me. It was the whole kind of the magic behind the the human-animal bond. And I understood it because I had my boyotas who really kind of taught me a lot about life and how to look at life through his eyes. And it was really just such a wonderful experience that I got to really kind of share that with a lot of owners as well. And I and, and so for me, it was really a very easy decision. I was able to go to school nearby in Baltimore, to University of Maryland in Baltimore. And what I worked through my college in a veterinary hospital and then was fortunate enough to go right into vet school and went to Tuskegee. And, and that's really kind of how it all happened. I, it was just really wonderful. There's no way I could have predicted any of this would have happened. I think really I just followed my passion and followed my interest. And I think that's really important is you tend to be really passionate about what you really find interest in and what comes easy. Right. right. And so, yeah, for sure. For sure. And listen, uh, nobody is going to say that veterinary oncology comes easy for anyone because it's incredibly challenging, <laughs> difficult. But you say follow your passions. And so how exactly did those passions that you had, you know, starting from the ground up, you know, uh, with Otis and then cleaning cages? How did that passion eventually transmute into veterinary oncology specifically? Because yeah. listen, I'll be honest with you, the specialist journey can be long and arduous. <laughs> you can have friends who start out you know, they have kids when you start when you, with your journey. And by the time you're done with your residency, the kids are graduating from college and all that sort of stuff. So it can be really, really long. I'm curious how you stuck with it and what led you into veterinary oncology? Yeah, great question. Uh, when I was at Tuskegee, I actually took a summer to, instead of go home and work at the, the vet hospitals that I'd worked in previously, I ended up taking the summer to travel through from south to north, the United States, and stopped off at three different hospitals. And it was three different universities, actually. And each university, I was able to spend a month at anywhere between three to four weeks at. And there is when I got to choose, you know, a variety of different rotations and, and, you know, specialty rotations to learn from. And I thought always I was going to be an internist. My dad wanted me to be a surgeon and I went the complete opposite way right into medicine. I didn't want to touch a scalpel. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and when I was at University of Tennessee, which is one of the schools I went to, I spent the four weeks at, they said to me, well, you can't do four full weeks in internal medicine. You have to split it. And I said, well, God, what are my options? And they said, well, you could do dermatology or oncology. And I said, oh, I'm definitely not doing dermatology. I don't even like the smell of the smelly skin and the yeast and all of that. It's not going to work. Yeah, that's pretty so, much what your life would be, just yeasty yeah. skin, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no offense to all the dermatologists out exactly. there. Exactly. No offense to all of you out there okay. listening who are dermatologists. And- just Courtney and I could not do it, but we really have respect for the fact that you can do it. And so, and so I said, well, let's do oncology. It's still in the realm of medicine. And I could, you know, think through these cases in kind of a linear fashion. It was totally what I thought would be right up my alley. And lo and behold, it was the perfect specialty. I got to look through, you know, I got to spend a lot of time with the specialist on the, on the service and work through the variety of different cancers that came in. And there's, you can almost split it. You could say, well, what's really fascinating is yes, the way my brain worked, worked really well for oncology and that all these cases were, I got to be somewhat the puppet master in a lot of these cases where I was able to take a case, figure out which strategy worked the best to give the case, this patient, the best outcome, meaning 
did they have to have surgery first and then have chemo or should they have chemo first and then do surgery and then do radiation? And so basically working with the variety of treatment modalities that exist and figuring out which modalities might work synergistically. So could I combine, you know, chemo with uh, radiation to make it work better or so being able to be that kind of director and figuring out what works best for the patient is exactly how I think through life honestly and so it worked really well for my personality but then what I think worked what I loved more than anything what I learned from um, one of the oncologists there Dr. Legendry who is the most lovely oncologist he was an older gentleman that was retiring probably within that five or 10 years of me being there, he taught me really the power of connection with clients and with these pet owners and really helping them through the journey because cancer is a really scary diagnosis and not knowing where to go and what to do and what to buy and how to emotionally deal with the roller coaster of it all, um, but also really figuring out how do you kind of stick with it, even with sometimes it's a bit of a rough road. So dogs get sick with chemo, cats get sick with chemo. How do we say, can we adjust the dose and keep going because we're getting such good results? And really being there for owners during the journey was really, I have to say, one of the most powerful parts of being an oncologist. That's it's really impressive. Sorry, yeah. to inter- sorry to interrupt you, but I have to interject for a second because what you're saying is so important. But I want to dial, I want to just rewind for a quick second on the beginning of that journey because mm-hmm. I think that the support during that journey is an integral part of the process. But when, as I'm talking to pet parents, and I'd love to know what your opinion is because you deal with this every day, multiple times a day. When I mention, or if I have to surgically remove tumor or basically remove a tumor, and I say something we discussed about the follow up of chemotherapy. Let me do this. Let me ask you, what do you think that I hear? What's the first sentiment that I hear when I mention the word chemotherapy? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. That's exactly it, Trina. You're exactly right, Trina. The most common sentiment I hear is, oh, chemo? Dr. Campbell, I would never do that for my dog. So before we jump into integrative medicine and cannabinoids, which, of course, we're going to delve deep into, I just want to touch really briefly on that. From your experience, when you hear the most common sentiment, oh, chemo, I would never do that for my dog. What are some of the things, what are some of the kind of guiding principles you use to guide that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to really hear why they feel that way. Oftentimes, it's because of either their experience or a family's experience. It is usually from a bad experience they have had with themselves or with someone they know or love, right? And so really listening to what they have to say and figuring out what is it that makes them so afraid to move forward. And then having the conversation about the benefit, you know, doing chemotherapy in animals versus people is that animals really have a significantly less, like a smaller chance of getting sick than do the, you know, than do people. And that's because we give substantially less chemotherapy. You know, the doses are, you know, sometimes more than 10 times less than what a person is going to get. And that's partly because animals cannot tolerate chemotherapy to the same level. And that's because we're not going to sit there and watch our animals suffer through right. chemotherapy because they're, the goal is very different. Dogs and cats don't live to 70 years old to have great-grandchildren, right? Mm-hmm. Their job is to be happy and healthy for as long as we can, but happy is such a big part of that. And if I make a dog sick for you know six months, how do you explain that to a dog that only had a survival time of eight months or, or a year? 
right? And so right. that doesn't work. You can't, there, it's being able to realize that the explanation to the pet doesn't work is the same way as explanation to the person. And right. so really realizing number one is their bodies can't take as much. They literally cannot take as much. They will pass it away if you give too much chemo, but also we just can't stand to watch the patient suffer through the process, realizing that the majority of these cancers we're treating are not curable cancers, even if we could give such whopping doses. Right. So it's more about quality of life than it is quantity of life, right? Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of, you know, it depends, depends on the owner, right? Some people want both. And when you right. when they want both, then it's trying to find that balance saying, listen, there might be some times that your pet gets sick because we really want to push for that quantity, but there's a limit to how sick we're really going to be able to make them. And so let's talk about how we can figure that plan out together. So everyone is comfortable, including the patient and yourself. That's fantastic. Thank you for articulating that because, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier about one of the magic of veterinary oncology is that integrative approach, but you were highlighting the diagnostics and the disciplines where you might have to consult surgery before doing chemo. You might have to consult uh, in, and again, let's celebrate the world of dermatology. You might have to consult a, der a dermatologist or an internist before starting chemo. And it seems like you followed that same principle in terms of integrative medicine. And so what I want to discuss with you before before we jump into that, the, the cannabis world is how you have uh, been able to incorporate both Eastern and Western medical philosophies for a better treatment and where that came from. Because when we were chopping it up offline, it was the idea that that idea of where somebody would come to you and ask you about uh, integrative medicine or alternative therapies, and you'd have to send them away, which for good reason, most veterinary schools don't incorporate that into a curriculum. So what do you feel like are the benefits of being able to come at it through two different lenses? Oh, I mean, it's tremendous. You're twice the doctor. I mean, that's how I feel, you You're know, twice I mean, the doctor. That, yeah. that's a great quote. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what you said is yeah, I get to look at them from two different lenses. And so I have a really good example. I had a pet come in to me that had cancer of the bladder and the owner said, you know, the kidney value started to climb very high and the pet started stopped eating. And the owner, we tried everything from a Western standpoint. We did all of the anti-nauseas and appetite stimulants and all these things. Nothing was working. The kidney values were right. high. The cancer was progressive. And the owner called me and said, well, I think I'm ready to stop. And I said, could you just do me a favor? Could you, because I hadn't seen the dog in maybe a week or so. I said, could you just come in and let me just take a look from an Eastern standpoint? So what does that mean? I said, just, just do me a favor. Just bring him in. Let me take a look. I just want to look at his color of his tongue, his pulses. I want to see, is he panting? Is he hot? Is he cold? What's going on? So she brings the patient in and I take a look at him and I think, God, there's such, there's a deficiency pattern, right? This okay. pet had what we would consider a very severe yin deficiency. So the pet was very hot, meaning yin is what cools the body. It's the element that cools the body. Interesting. Sorry to interrupt you. So yin is what cools the body. You are detecting that this pet just seemed to be almost like hyperthermic, just very, very hot to the touch, you mean? Just warm when you touch well, the body? Not necessarily to the touch. It's this, the color of the tongue. So the tongue was very red, for instance, instead of a nice color pink, right? The pet was panting nonstop. Okay. The owner reported that the pet started sleeping on the cold floor, no longer in the bed. Okay. Okay. So, and that's very common that we see with kidney disease, like chronic kidney failures, or, or even, you know, that that's a very common thing. We'll start to see a loss of yin. So okay. I said, you know what, why don't I try to support this dog's yin by giving it a little bit more 
an herbal formula with yin support and and see if I'm able to balance him a little bit. I wonder if he's just not eating because he's so hot too. Like maybe it's starting to to affect his appetite and that's part of what's happening. So I used this, you know, a few different formulas for this patient and said, do me a favor, just give me three days. Let's see if in three days he's not any better or God forbid he's worse, then it's time. And so she calls me, I think it was like three, four days later and says, listen, he's eating again. He's eating, he's happy, he's going for his walks, he's sleeping in bed with me again. And I thought, oh my God, I didn't even use chemo, right? I didn't use kind of the typical, all of the typical Western conventional therapies were not working. And I, and finally I used something that just balanced him and it worked and he was eating and felt good. He felt good for almost three months and then was put to sleep. And I felt what a gift I was able to give. And if I hadn't looked at this patient through both lenses, right? I wouldn't have been able to help him and he would have been put to sleep three months earlier. And so I just think it allows me to to be more diverse in my approach. It allows me to be diverse in my therapeutic approach, my diagnostic approach. So overall, I do feel that I'm able to give more options to owners than when I was just doing conventional medicine. I was stuck with just those that one lens. That's fascinating. The gift of integrative medicine. I I like the way you put that because it truly is a gift for those. And, you know, there are some that uh, I'm sure you've gotten some blowback. There's some that eschew the idea of Eastern medicine philosophies, even though it's existed longer than uh, Western medicine philosophies. I'm kind of curious to know how you took that that level of epiphany and discovery and gifts and brought that into the cannabis space. What was that core motivation to make that transition from, all right, well, I've got a great handle on Western. I'm really, really discovering the benefits of Eastern medicine. Now I want to take that next level of integrative medicine and bring it into the cannabis space. So what I loved about cannabis, there was a little bit, maybe a, I would say half a chapter in my traditional Chinese herbal medicine class on cannabis. and it, Only half a chapter. Half a chapter. I mean, teeny, teeny, maybe less than half a chapter, right? I mean, something really small. And so I thought, well, this is really interesting that they're even talking about cannabis. I had heard a lot in the, you know, the human medical space and um, seen, you know, had experienced uh, cannabis as medicine for myself for joint pain. I have chronic joint pain. And so it's helped me. And, you know, talking to other folks, I thought, well, this is very interesting. Now there's something in my veterinary, you know, Chinese herbal class talking about cannabis. And I was very interested in botanical medicine, obviously, already. And what I found so fascinating about cannabis is that there were 700 compounds within this plant. And honestly, there's probably over 700 to 700 that we know within this plant and that and in Many of these compounds, the majority of these compounds have physiologic and potential medicinal properties. And that's huge because a lot of the Chinese herbal um, herbs that I use, some of them are just so like solo herbs, right? They're isolate. They're by themselves versus a lot of the formulas that we use is a combination of multiple herbs that you're putting together to create a formula where with a cannabis plant, the formula is the whole, it's just the plant itself. You don't need to mix it with a bunch of other plants, right? It is just the cannabis plant. And so the fact that this plant was so rich in compounds and these compounds had their own effect in the body was beyond fascinating to me. And that's what really got me looking into the 
the effects of the plant and how it can, you know, be implemented in veterinary medicine as a medicine. I love that. I, I, I think that when people hear the number 700, you know, some people are like, wait, so you're telling me there's more to the, the cannabis plant than just THC and CBD? That's just, you know what I mean? So the fact that it's 700 is, is so, I like when you really put the scope and the depth and how expansive this particular field can be. I mean, I've certainly, you know better than I, but certainly when you're discussing this or you hear this online, there are people talking about CBM, which is a chemical that helps with sleep or THCV, which helps potentially with it with insulin uptake. I, I guess what I'm what I'm very curious is to nowadays the word research is almost synonymous with just intensely Googling something at a red light while you're waiting for traffic to move. Describe your level of research. Describe your level of education in this field, both in terms of botanical medicine and in the cannabis space, because something tells me it's a little bit more than just Googling at a red light. Is that the case? Yeah. Yeah, just a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. I mean, right. what, I, what I started to do, honestly, is I started to go to workshops. I started to go to conferences, and these were all human-based conferences on the, just some of it was just on the plant itself. And then what other conferences were on the medical benefits of it. And I learned from some of the top cannabis clinicians, some of the top cannabis researchers, many of them actually out of Europe. So, and out of Israel. So big ones out of Spain and Israel that were doing cancer and cannabis research. And as an oncologist, I found it beyond, you know, super fascinating and, um, you know, started to touch base with some of them and figuring out what they were doing and why they were choosing this over that and why they were looking at this particular molecule, talking to um, some of the smaller kind of pharmaceutical companies that were looking at isolate therapies and trying to figure out why were they only looking at this one part of the plant? Because if you look at it from a, when I think of, you know, the Chinese herbal medicine, integrative therapy, a lot of it is all about combining things. So why the heck would you take a plant that was so supposedly magical and then just take out one part and use it one, use only one compound? It didn't make sense to me. And so really kind of investigating why companies were doing what they were doing, why some of the, some of the really big research that was coming out, how it was affecting the body at the molecular level, not just, oh, it made dogs, you know, or cats feel relaxed. It was more than that. Why was that happening? Was it working? And what part of the brain was this work? Was it working on? And then from a cancer standpoint, what were all the mechanisms that, you know, cannabis has the potential of causing this anti-neoplastic effect, right? And, but there's so many levels. It's not just, it has an anti-cancer effect. It can work on, you know, four or five different levels. And so I started, I also spent, uh, you know, some time with some of the cannabis clinicians at their clinics and seeing how they were treating patients. And then really kind of coming, getting all of the up-to-date information together and working on publishing a review paper in veterinary medicine on cannabis and animals. What should we be thinking about as veterinarians and what should veterinarians really know about the cannabis plant? Is it toxic? Is it not toxic? What parts might be toxic? What has most of the research been done in, right? Because everyone says, oh, there's research, but really what is the research? Is it preclinical data? Is it clinical data, right? And really kind of delving into more detail than just stopping at the red light and checking my phone, which we really shouldn't be on our phone anyway while driving. 
Gotcha. Yeah, so a word to the wise, no texting or Googling while driving. Uh, listen, I uh, please, I'm literally hanging on every word. That Everything you're saying is so fascinating. Would you just allow us to take a brief break just to pause for a word from one of our sponsors, and you'll stay with us and join us on the other side. Do you mind doing that, Trina? Of course, no problem. Okay, fantastic. We're just going to pause for a brief moment for one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Has your pet ever suffered from digestive issues, anxiety, or joint pain? We want to address these issues and more with high-grade CBD oil from Alpha, made specifically for your furry friends. Using Alaskan salmon oil as a carrier, Alpha Pet's 500 CBD oil is lab-tested for quality, consistency, and safety. Plus, we are giving Pet Life Radio listeners 25% off and free shipping with code PL25 for a limited time. So visit MyAlphaCBD.com slash dogs now. That's MyAlphaCBD.com forward slash dogs. Because your furry friends are family. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> Okay, we are back. We are joined by Dr. Trina Hazar, a veterinary oncologist, a specialist in integrative medicine, and a absolute one of the most incisive thinkers when it comes to the world of veterinary medical cannabis. And so we've had an awesome discussion thus far. And she was touching on right before we went to break something that I really liked hearing, which was there are over 700 potential molecules or chemicals in this plant that could that could potentially have medical benefits. And the question that I have is that a lot of people don't realize just the history of cannabis. They kn- we know it's been used for food, fiber, fuel, uh, but the medical properties is what really has caught people's fascination. And what I wanted to talk to you about, Trina, is just essentially the endocannabinoid system and, and kind of tapping into that because I've heard people refer to this as a pharmacy within a flower. And if it has properties like as an anti-inflammatory, a pain reliever, anti-cancer, or even anti-convulsant drug. We, we know that in 2018, the first, what is it, uh, marijuana-based or CBD-based drug was approved for epilepsy. But I, I guess my question for you is, when you are treating patients with cancer and you're doing your, as I crudely call it, your anti-cancer stuff, when you do that, what properties are you looking for from cannabis to kind of balance that approach? Are there particular properties and qualities of cannabis that you really want to maximize, whether it's anti-nausea or anti-inflammatory? Are there certain properties that you really hold on to and focus on? So yeah, it depends on the, the case. And so some cases are where owners are looking for really um, what we would consider a definitive intent approach. They are ready to just blast this cancer to nowhere and really just be as aggressive as possible. Then I look for more of an anti-cancer approach, right? So I'm looking for the cannabis product to have you know, anti-proliferative properties, right? So creating the cell cycle arrest or inhibiting, there's one particular protein um, called ID1 that's upregulated in over 20 cancers that play a really pivotal role in proliferation and metastatic disease. And CBD is one of those compounds. And out of the whole plant, CBD is that number one compound that actually inhibits ID1 protein. Okay. So- 
it's really interesting. And then there, you know, other parts of the plant can induce cancer cell death. So via multiple mechanisms, autophagy is one, also apoptosis, where you actually, this plant can inhibit some of those survival pathways by enhancing some of that reactive oxygen species or activating some of those proteins that exist that are pro-apoptotic that cause the cells to really go through that cell um, suicide. Cannabis can also inhibit metastasis or invasion. So for cancer to spread, it needs to invade into blood vessels or lymphatics. And cannabis, what I'm talking about here, this is based off of several preclinical studies that have looked at how in either, you know, mice models or in petri dishes and how it can inhibit some invasion and metastasis via, you know, inhibiting some of those pro-angiogenic factors like VEGF or EGFR. Also, the big thing, if you think about it, is what plays a big role in cancer formation? Inflammation, right? And so certain cancers are actually caused from chronic inflammation. When you think of GI lymphoma in the cat, right? A lot of them start off as inflammatory bowel disease and can transition into this small cell or low-grade lymphoma, small cell lymphoma in the cat. And then you think of osteosarcoma, right? And how chronic inflammation of the bone from previous fractures and things like that could even, you know, cause osteosarcoma or, you know, bone cancer. Sorry, just to interrupt, this is fascinating because when we think about particular tumors or masses undergoing malignant type transformation, uh, the things that come to mind, of course, are solar induced skin tumors. We think about rectal polyps sitting there and turning, you know, turning malignant, particularly dogs with bladder stones or who have aggressive inflammation into the bladder, cystitis those polyploid lesions inside the bladder can undergo malignant transformation. Are you saying that there have been some preclinical data or there's some recent information that may suggest that some of these tumors may, that CBD may actually inhibit that malignant transformation? Well, so there's not been a study that I have read that will say it will inhibit the malignant transformation. What I have read is that it can affect and cause immune modulation. Got it. And in part, by causing immune modulation, you're also getting a reduction in inflammation. And so so you think everything that you just said, right, the cystitis, all of these things are from inflammation. It's the chronic inflammatory uh, kind of in the micro environment of whatever we're talking about is what then tends to lead to a cancerous formation. So what I'm saying is, is if we can reduce inflammation and enhance an anti-tumor immune response with cannabis, which cannabis in a preclinical setting has been shown to do those things by actually inhibiting some of those pro-inflammatory cytokines and in activating some of the anti-inflammatory cytokines, you actually have these cannabinoid receptors on your immune cells, on your um, T cells, your B cells, your macrophages, your neutrophils, your mast cells, right? You have tons of cannabinoid receptors in your spleen and your bone marrow. So this system that we'll talk about in a little bit is involved in the immune modulation process. And if there's a way that we can, you know, enhance that anti-tumor immune response and reduce inflammation, theoretically, I do believe that you may then be able to reduce or at least prolong when the transition occurs to malignancy, in my opinion. 
Well, no, and that's that is the nature, and the for lack of a better term, the magic, the intricacies of that endocannabinoid system. In that, a lot of people don't even realize there's a system in all of our bodies that will that these chemicals are designed for. Right, our bodies are designed to pick up a lot of these chemicals, and so I think that the idea and the concept behind the medicinal use and how expansive it can be is not lost on anybody. In fact, I was just saying that over 60% of people recognize that there's benefits to medical cannabis. But I also think what can be lost in this conversation, particularly when I was talking with these pet parents who will give CBD oil, is the idea of safety. And I will maybe seven out of every 10 pet parents I meet, their dog will be on some form of CBD oil. If it's skin problems, CBD oil. Uh, They have a broken leg, CBD oil. They have ear problems, CBD oil. So what I wanted to find out from you is in terms of safety, do you feel like there's been enough research, there's enough information out there? And so we, uh, what I don't want to get into is that if a little is good, more must be better mentality. And so for me, there is absolutely no doubt of the benefits of it. What I want to make sure is for all of our dogs and cats and all of our small animals out there that it's safe. What say you about that? I actually think it's probably one of the safest compounds that we use in veterinary awesome. medicine. Yeah. When you look at the toxicity data, and there's data from, you know, 1976, 1980. I mean, there's older data. One particular study I thought was fascinating on THC, and I'll get back to CBD in one moment, is, you know, most, you know, I think most people are, you know, veterinarians, uh, pet parents are just nervous about THC, right? That they say THC is toxic, right? This is the kind of myth that's out there. And, right. And, and, you know, I think that when you look back at some of these papers, what you see is that they've looked at us, they did a study when they evaluated what they call the lethal dose, right? When they looked at the milligram, how many milligrams per kilogram could you give a dog of THC before the dog dies, Right. And so they evaluated in dogs and monkeys in this paper and rodents. And what they found is that there was no toxic dose. Well, let me say that again. Yes, because listen, yeah. some of these studies and one that comes to mind, a really cruel study. I, want, I can't remember the year, but it was like 1950 or 1960, basically showing that dogs have an amazing ability to control their glucose. And essentially what they did is they starved these dogs for a long time. And even 20 days later, they still had normal blood glucose. Thank goodness we no longer do those <laughs> kinds of things in 2019. But for from these older studies, we do learn a lot of sort a lot of things and what you're saying is when you look at some of those those older papers what they're showing is that there was no toxic dose yeah they went all the way up to 3000 milligrams per kilogram and wow. none of the dogs in that paper died directly from the THC so in the dogs that were studied two of the dogs ended up passing away and they passed away because they went they ended up aspirating and developing pneumonia Okay. okay. And that was because you can get into this kind of comatose state, right? Where they ended up, they may have eaten a meal right before. I mean, who knows how this particular part of the study was done, but it would be like if I fed a dog a huge meal and then put it under anesthesia and said, well, some of them passed away because they got pneumonia. They didn't die from the anesthesia, 
they died because they ate this. I mean, who knows exactly what happened? In a similar regard to THC combined with brownies and chocolate, you, you know, obviously, yeah, go ahead, please. No, exactly. I think you're correct. It's, you know, why are these dogs dying? It's because they just, they ate dark chocolate that was made, you know, in these brownies or baker's chocolate. And they were, they ended up having a reaction to the chocolate and not actually the cannabinoid that was in there. Absolutely. I just have to get this out of the way. This is probably, I know you're going to smile at this question, but I just have to get it out there. We're talking about safety. So naturally, the idea of side effects comes to the top of my mind. Have you seen, besides this comatose state, have you seen just in your practice and utilization of cannabis any side effects? The most common question that I'll get is, you know, doc, do dogs actually get the munchies? When they're given these cannabis products, I mean, it sounds silly, but a lot of people want to know that. So, so what's your opinion? Yeah, it's a good question because as an oncologist, I would love my patients to have the munchies. Of course, um, right? And especially while undergoing chemotherapy. And interestingly, dogs do not, and I've treated, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of patients with cannabis. And I could tell you that very few dogs truly get the munchies. I would say probably less than 15% if I had to come up with a number. And what I find is that cats get them a little bit more than dogs do. My cat patients, the owners will say, my God, they weren't eating at all. And now they're stuffing their face, right? It's the typical kind of munchies that, that, you know, people think about. Dogs, I don't hear that very much. I want them to get it because so many of them aren't eating secondary to their cancer or their their chemotherapy. But uh, no, I don't see that very often. I would say a small percentage where an owner will say, I can clearly say that their appetite went up after dosing. Very, very few cases in dogs. Cats okay, more very so. Few. Cats more munchies, dogs, not so much munchies. That's important. That's important to, <laughs> to know. Okay. There's so many questions I have for you, but running on a little bit of time, I really want to dial down on some of the most common questions out there. And that is the idea. And I just keep going back to that number 700 that you mentioned, over 700 potential chemicals that can be of medicinal value in the flower, pharmacy in a flower, so to speak. Can you explain this hot button term that we've heard all over CNN and different news networks, which is the entourage effect. How important is that in that the sum of all of those chemicals is greater than the individual components? What's your opinion about how important is this entourage effect, or at least back up and explain to the listeners what exactly is the entourage effect? So the entourage effect is exactly what you just described. It's really the sum of all the parts. So all the parts equaling the phytocannabinoids, which is what you hear of a lot of times, THC, CBD, CBN, CBC, and really over 100. There's about 100 phytocannabinoids in the plant. And then terpenes, which is really, it's um, terpenes are essential oils that are within the cannabis plant, also found in a variety of other plants and even some animals in nature. For instance, black pepper has the same compound or terpene uh, makeup, the molecular makeup of beta caryophylline, which is a terpene that's found within the cannabis plant. And there's over 200 terpenes that are found within the plant. So, which is really fascinating because these terpenes themselves have medicinal benefits and certainly have a multitude of physiologic effects in the body. And flavonoids, which are the compounds, so let me just take a step back. The terpenes is really what gives the plant a specific smell or oh, right. kind of like a, 
like limonene is in, in lemons. Like that, that's exactly. a Exactly. Yep. Okay. So limonene's found within the cannabis plant, also found in the, the, the rind of these citrus fruits, like limes or lemons. And, and they were, gives it this special taste, uh, taste or smell. And what's really kind of fascinating about it is, is that many people that decide to use cannabis, they'll find that they really have a liking to a specific type of what they call chemovar or strain. And that's oftentimes because of the terpene component. The terpene oh, component is what people will say, God, I love the way this one smells or tastes. There's something about it. Well, it's not just because of the way it smells or tastes. It also gives them a specific effect. So let's go back to limonene, as you mentioned it. Limonene in particular gives the effect on the body of like uh, almost like a little caffeine, right? So okay. some people will say uplifting. uplifting, exactly. So oftentimes used in strains or chemovars that are that are made for let's say or grown for antidepressive effects or okay. you need a little energy people will say well this this wake and bake situation where you wake up in the morning and you have a little bit of cannabis well if you have something with limonene you're ready to go and start your day it's like having a cup of coffee but if you pick the wrong chemovar or strain and it has mercine in it which is also found in the mango that one really can can make, give you that couch lock effect and you're not going to want to go to work or go do anything. You're not right. going to want to go for that walk, right? You're going to want to sit and watch TV and, and eat a burger, right? And so it's the terpenes that really play such a big role in how you feel, not just the cannabinoids, which everyone always says it's got to be the THC or the, the CBD. If you look at you know, sativa and indica, these are kind of some of the older terms people used to use as sativas were the plants that really uplifting, where the indicas were more, you know, relaxing. The THC and the CBD are may, maybe exactly the same in milligrams. The difference between those two is the terpene profile. That's what does it, right? The next part of the plant is the flavonoids. And flavonoids is really what gives it the color. So you'll see people will say that this one's very purple, and they call it purple haze, let's say, or this one is, you know, a little bit more green, or that's the flavonoids. The flavonoids, there's about 29 different flavonoids within the cannabis plant. And these flavonoids have a significant amount of antioxidant effect. They actually, one of them, canaflavin B, is unique. Canaflavin A and canaflavin B are unique to the cannabis plant. There was just an article recently published looking at how canaflavin B was shown to have anti-cancer effect for pancreatic cancer as a sole agent without the plant. So I've just said that each of these individually, and then there's some B vitamins and fatty acids in the plant as well. So essentially the entourage effect just means combining all these different parts together and saying, well, the plant would work better this as a medicine if we put all the parts together because there can be synergistic effect versus just having one compound by itself. Genius, the genius. I just want to put a period at the end of the sentence. Sorry to interrupt you real quickly, but I really want to know to drill down because there are a lot of people listening to you like, this is really fascinating stuff. Particularly, there's people who didn't realize that the terpenes are what give it that, that profile, but then also the flavonoids. What is your opinion about CBD-only products, like in yeah. pills and all of that sort of thing? I don't recommend it. 
I'll just say it just like that. I don't recommend it. And the reason I don't recommend it is based back, back to that kind of entourage effect is CBD will only get you so far. It's the entourage. It's the, the help of the other compounds within the plant that will make it work better. So it doesn't mean that CBD won't work. It depends on what you're first of all trying to treat. In my experience, having patients come in with what they call CBD isolate products, so CBD only products, what you'll get oftentimes is, hey, I so an example would be a dog that comes in on a CBD isolate for arthritis. I saw some improvement, but it's no longer working. Well, it's no longer working because it's just by itself. And the whole point of this endocannabinoid system and these phytocannabinoids and these terpenes and this plant effect, this entourage, whole plant effect, is to try to get the plant to balance the system properly. And if we just use one compound out of this entire plant, you're actually not really causing a significant balance. You're maybe actually causing a little bit of an imbalance, right? Or you might be able, it may be trying to balance it, but it's just not a strong enough itself to really create the balance. You need to help from some of the others. And so what you'll find is some diseases won't even respond to CBD by itself. You'll need other parts of the plant or others will respond, but the durability won't be very, won't be very good. And then lastly, the potential for toxicity goes up when you use just isolate product. And there's been both preclinical and clinical data looking at cannabis extract versus versus isolates. And they found in all these studies that the extract using a whole plant was more effective than using isolate for, you know, anti-neoplastic effects for sure. But also for anxiety, awesome. for pain, other things as well. It's so salient and so germane what you're talking about because you, sometimes in just natural conversations, you'll hear people say, oh, I use a one-to-one or a 20-to-one or they're, they're talking about specific ratios of THC to CBD and knowing that it's so much deeper than that. It's so much more complex than that. Looking at terpene, uh, profiles and looking at uh, these flavonoid profiles, that is really underscores the complexity of what this entire medical system, what the entire sort of endocannabinoid and, and medical system is about here. So I guess my question to you is, what do you feel are both the biggest myths and obstacles in treating patients with cannabis-like products? I would say the first myth we already talked about was the THC is toxic, don't use it. That I do not agree with that at all. I think that at high doses, it can be toxic in that it can cause dogs to urinate on, it, on itself. Like they have urinary incontinence. They can have something called static ataxia. Like It can be toxic. It's just not lethal, but that they shouldn't ever have it. In my cancer patients, what's your driving factor as your anti-neoplastic agent is going to be your phytocannabinoid THC. The other ones, CBD can have anti anti-cancer effect as well and CBN and some of these other ones, CBG is a big one, but THC is your kind of your frontline fighter there. And so I having THC in a cancer, if you're trying to get anti-cancer effect is, is extremely important. And that is a big myth that I think we need to say is if dosed appropriately, THC is safe to give to animals unless a dog or a cat or any animal has severe, say, cardiac disease. That would be the okay. only reason that I would just, that would be my contraindication, where I'd say slow down, maybe stick to a low dose of CBD, don't go too much in the THC side if you do have cardiac disease. The other big myth that I would want to address 
is I would, you know, it's so funny. I was just thinking about it and then I started talking about toxicity. No, listen, that that people think that it's these are non-toxic or that uh, you can give isolates. I mean, these are all huge myths that you hear about just in everyday conversation. So I think those are those are absolutely key. You know, last one for me is what is number one, where can people find out more information from you about this? Because everything you've been saying is just so on point. And like I said, it addresses so many really popular topics, but there's so much more we could delve into. I could probably talk to you for another three hours, but where can people hear from you more? And is there a website people can go to check you out? Yeah. So I have a website now. It's it's just, it's Dr. Dr. Trina, T-R-I-N-A. Hazah, dot com. So drtrinahazah.com. And there I put up, you know, various articles that are coming out. I do several speaking events across the country. If I'm in your state, you know, feel free to come. I'd love to meet you and answer any questions you may have. Oh, that's I great. Also- that's great. I'm, I have a pen and paper. Is there somewhere where you're headed soon? I might just make a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Nashville, Tennessee, actually, in uh, in two weeks, I'm going to be on a panel discussion on cannabinoid medicine in veterinary medicine at the veterinary holistic meeting, the American veterinary holistic meeting. And I'll be there. And then I'm going to be in San Diego. And then I go to Houston for the veterinary cancer society meeting where I'll be doing a workshop there. So really interesting stuff because vets all over really need to know about it. It doesn't mean you have to use it, but really understanding the safety, what makes sense, what is like, I think more than just the ratios, right? Figuring out if I would say the most important thing that you should get from this is getting products that are as diverse as possible. So you want to get products that have terpenes and that have several, you know, phytocannabinoids and have, you know, several parts. This whole plant mentality makes a lot of sense. And it makes sense until we can figure out exactly which compounds are needed for what disease. And when that happens, then big pharma and other people will start to come in and start making these isolate products that are just for that disease. But that will not happen for a while because research is happening as we speak, trying to figure out what compounds are going to be the best for which disease process. And until then, I would say combine a variety of products from different manufacturers so you can get you know products that are cultivated in different environment that can then change the chemical makeup or the, the the genotype of the plant, which will then allow for more of a diversity to the patient. So you can get, the hope is you can get a better chance of response as a successful outcome. Diversity seems to be the common through line by which you practice veterinary medicine, whether it's incorporating all of the other disciplines that help you get the correct diagnosis for for uh, cancer to integrating Western and Eastern philosophies to now talking about cannabis specifically and having a very diverse molecule set or molecule profile with that plant. It really sounds like you're all about making sure that you keep an open mind and that you bring everything to the table, the entire arsenal to the table to keep these pets happy and healthy. I got to be honest with you. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Like I said, I wish we had more time. In fact, I'm going to ask you right now, is there any way we can do a sequel to this episode in the near future? Because I know people are going to want to hear more. Absolutely. I, I look forward to that. 
absolutely. Okay, well, awesome. Thank you again for joining us here on Anything Possible. I'm so happy that you you are an illustrious guest for our inaugural episode. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, fantastic. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Trina Hazad. Just really, and I, and I keep using the word fascinating, but it was really intriguing. And deep. she took a deep dive with us. And not only just talking about her history of where she came from, Washington, D.C., and then working all the way through, and just that arduous journey of becoming a specialist. And then as a specialist, she didn't stop there. She said, I've got Western medicine. Let me add in Eastern medicine. And then delve deep into cannabinoids and the world of veterinary medical cannabis. And I think that the take-homes obviously are that you need that cannabis is powerful. It's got a lot of anti-cancer effects, anti-inflammatory effects, but the key is in the diversity of the molecule. I mean, of course, we touched on really salient topics and, and some whimsical ones too, like cats get the munchies a little bit more than dogs do. But I think the key for us is understanding that there's more research coming down the pipeline soon. And if you have any questions or concerns, certainly reach out to Dr. Haza on her website. And I know her social media presence is going to continue to grow. So you can obviously reach out to her there as well. So for me here, Dr. Courtney, uh, with Anything Possible, thank you for joining us on this episode. We are going to have more illustrious guests coming up throughout these episodes. And uh, tune in next time. And just remember, there is nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Let's Talk Pets. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.